Hello and welcome to Talk Gnosis, the web's premier internet talk show about Gnosticism, the Gnostics, Gnosis, mysticism, magic, alchemy, inner alchemy, spiritual alchemy, lab alchemy, Hellenized Egypt, Alexandrian syncretism, and whatever else we feel like talking about. Like My the weather. Like the weather, uh, which was actually, uh, you know, we do get feedback from the wonderful Gnostic Elite, which is what we call our fans. And we used to always open the show with a long discussion about the weather back when Father Tony was around, and they loved it. We got lots of positive feedback saying, talk more about the weather. Uh, <laughs> that voice you heard was uh, not the voice of God, but the next best thing. <laughs> That's Bishop Lady Peterson. Hello, Bishop. How are you, Deacon? I'm doing as well as one can in this fallen world. Um, very excited about our topic tonight. Absolutely. With a fa fascinating figure from antiquity, uh, Zosimos of Panopolis. Uh, that's not our guest. That's what we're talking about. But to talk about him with us is our guest, Dr. Shannon Grimes. Hello, Dr. Grimes. Hi. Thank you very much for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Uh, it's, it's, so, it's a, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank, thank you. you. No, I, I, when I heard about the show and I had a look at one of Dr. Grimes' papers look at, and had a look at a little bit about her book, this is fascinating stuff. So I'm looking forward to getting into it. Yeah. Good. Me too. Um, well, I'll, I'll launch right into our traditional top of the show, Patreon commercial. That's right. I have to do it now, although you could be skipping ahead. But if I do it at the end of the show, everybody will turn it off. Hey, we're listeners supported. Uh, we're brought to you by viewers and listeners like you. We literally can't do the show without your support. So if you're able to, you can donate as little as $1 per piece of media. We're always freshening to do more media per month. Uh, we are hoping to do... Uh, uh, two new miniseries, uh, one about uh, conspiracy and uh, one about pop culture. And uh, if we do end up doing a thousand pieces of content per month, you can actually cap it as well. So you can donate for as little as a dollar per piece of media. You can put a cap on that so that you don't have to spend a million dollars per month when we release a million pieces of media. And if you just go to patreon.com slash Gnostic, you can sign up there. In return, you do get all of our shows early, and we're trying to think of other things that we can give you. We just don't want to put anything behind a paywall, because that just isn't the vibe that we're going for. Uh, you can also do one-time donations at patreon.com slash Gnostic, and if you're unable to help us financially, we completely understand. These are strange, hard, terrifying, horrible times, and you can also help us out by telling people about the show, sharing it on social social media, liking, subscribing on the podcatcher of your choice and on YouTube, leaving good reviews, leaving good comments. And that's it. The commercial's over. Uh, Dr. Grimes, can you tell us, and of course, I know that we the show's only about an hour long, but can you tell us what is alchemy? Oh, goodness. That's a big question. And it depends on what culture, what time period you're looking at. I think instead of alchemy, there are rather alchemies um, that will change depending, again, on the time and culture. Um, so I specialize in Greco-Egyptian alchemy, which is the earliest uh, form of so-called Western alchemy. Western alchemy would include the Greco-Egyptian texts, uh, which were translated um, and traveled through Byzantine um, culture and then into Islamic culture, translated into Arabic and then into European culture. 
Mm. So I'm looking at the earliest um, layers of that tradition. Okay. So what is it? Um, what is it? What is it? <laughs> um, well, traditionally, alchemy is thought of as transmutation, usually the transmutation of base metals into gold. Um, but that's not really the case with Greco-Egyptian alchemy. They, they were interested in um, coloring metals. Most of the recipes are for coloring metals. And they include some philosophical speculation. Now, not all of them include philosophical speculation, but some do. Um, about the, say, the unity of nature, the transmutation of the, the four elements, um, and how those are all one, and how they become, you know, and move into one thing into another, um, as well as some religious uh, talk. And my my guy, Zosimos of Panopolis, the alchemist I study, is um, definitely focused on the religious aspects. Hmm. And and apparently uh, Zosimos of Panopolis, he's sometimes known as, as the father of religious alchemy. Uh, why is this? He is the first in the Greco-Egyptian corpus to really um, go into the religious aspects in depth. And this is, uh, he's not, he's probably not the first to ever think of this because uh, Zosimos, I think, is a priest. And the religious traditions behind metallurgy are that go in um in tandem with metallurgy, probably predate him by a thousand years or more. Hmm. But the texts don't appear until the Roman period. So we don't see any alchemical texts until, you know, first, second centuries. Um, and so he's, he's the first textual evidence of a religious approach to alchemy. But again, I think it, it goes back much farther than that. I actually think he's one of the last of his kind. Now, you mentioned that Zosimos was a priest. Would this be in Egypt, uh, what you know, some people would label as, as a pagan priest? Yes. Um, and, yes. Uh, yeah. And uh, so he would have been, uh, the, do we know much about like what he would have been doing religiously? Like, would, have, would it have been like a syncretic cult of Seraphis or he would have been doing the traditional Egyptian priesthood or is that just not information we have? Well, we don't have a lot of information. So that's the thing is, with Greco-Egyptian alchemy, we have these texts and people have studied them both for the chemistry as well as for the philosophy involved, but hardly anybody was looking at the culture of these alchemists. You know, who, who were these people? What were they doing? So that's what I tried to do in my book because I had these questions. Um, I did my doctoral dissertation on Zosimos and even after I finished that, I still couldn't figure out um, what, what were they doing? Who were these people? So in my book that just came out a couple of years ago, I did a deep dive into the culture and tried to uh, flesh out the temple and trade guild cultures, which the trade guilds were just emerging um, at that time. But he would have been probably a traditional priest. Uh, the priesthood was a hereditary position. And um, they had a long tradition of metallurgy. Egyptian metallurgists uh, were known for coloring metals. That was a specialty of theirs. And there were all kinds of rituals associated with metallurgy, especially because they were making um, a lot of times religious objects, particularly statues of the gods. And so there were all kinds of religious activities uh, around, especially God making. Um, statue making, animating the statues to bring them to life, to consecrate them. Um, and Zosimo seems to be steeped in that tradition. He alludes to some of these ancient rituals um, in his writings. And his theology seems to be um, based on divinizing matter. Yeah. 
And uh, why did Zosimos believe it was important to, to do both religious alchemy and material alchemy? Well, I think that comes from his priestly training. Um, and again, I don't know anything really about how priests were trained, but we knew, uh, we do, we can see that there were rituals associated. So I think it probably comes with that, but also because of his uh, religious interests in, in hermetic thought, Gnosticism, Neoplatonism, which he's blending together. And all of those talk about the divine spark within matter and how to liberate that divine spark within matter. And so I think all of that jives really well with what he's doing um, as a metallurgist. Mm. Now, you mentioned uh, the Gnostics, obviously, uh, somebody that we're quite interested in on this show. Now, some scholars, they've seen links between the ideas and symbols that he uses and those that are found in what we sometimes think of as classical Gnostic texts in the Nag Hammadi. What's the connection here? Was he, uh, was he a Gnostic? I'm putting it in scare quotes for some of the scholars out there who may not like the term. Um, or was he inspired by them? Or were both he and they drawing from the same sources? Did he belong to one of the Gnostic sects? Is he worshiping with them? Is he reading their materials? What What is the connection there? Well, so Zosimos was a scribe. Sorry, I'm adjusting my headphones here. I'm not used to wearing headphones. Um, <laughs> Zosimos was a scribal priest, is what I think. So his primary role was to copy ancient metallurgical recipes. And so think about how uh, this was difficult for an Egyptian to do because he's doing this from, hieroglyphs, from hieroglyphics, from demotic script, um, which was really ancient for, you know, even in his day. Think about like uh, the equivalent would be us trying to decipher Beowulf or, you know, old English texts like that. They're very difficult to understand. So his role is as a scribe is to translate these texts. And of course, as a scribe, he also has access to the whole library of um, religious literature, um, technical literature, astronomical literature. Um, all of these things were part of what was called the house of life, which was like the scholarly branch of the temple in those days. And Zosimos seems he has, there's a lot of indications in his work that he was associated with the house of life. So he probably got interested in Gnosticism through either people he knew, um, but also through texts. I mean, I think he's pretty clearly reading the Apocryphon of John, for example. Um, I also think that one of his colleagues, so, a lot of Zosimos's writings are in the form of letters to a female colleague named Theosebia. And I think that she may have been um, a Gnostic or at least Jewish or Christian, probably Christian. Um, it's hard to say. But um, the only time he talks about Gnostic um, ideas are in his letters to her. Mm. So I think that that's probably a main connection. But he was, you know, clearly interested in reading, and he's trying to blend together Gnostic, Hermetic, um, Gnostic and Hermetic ideas, most specifically. But he brings in some Greek myth and um, other Jewish apocryphal writings or uh, pseudepigraphal writings too, and kind of weaves all these ideas together. Can you tell us a bit about Zosimos's uh, origin myths and and the figure of Anthropos uh, who plays a big role in these myths? Sure. Um, first of all, I will say that Zosimos doesn't really recount any myth in 
a lot of detail. So the text where he talks about the Anthropos is in um, a text called uh, Letter Omega or on Apparatus and Furnaces. It's been published as on the, letter, on the Letter Omega, so that's kind of what it's most famously known by. And that's one of those texts where he's weaving together hermetic ideas and hermetic story with Gnostic ideas and story and Greek myth, especially the myth of um, Prometheus and Epimetheus. So he's trying to weave all these together. So it's not like a he's not telling the myth in any kind of long linear form. He's bringing in bits and pieces from here and then comparing it with ideas from uh, from other cultures, trying to show a universal agreement. So um, basically, the anthropos for him is the divine image, and this image, uh, in hermetic terms, was created by uh, by Nous, by the highest god, the father god. Um, and then Nous then creates, uh, there's some hypostases, I guess. Um, so Nous has word, has a son called word, and he also has another son called Nous or mind. And mind ends up, the lesser mind, I guess, the son, uh, one of the divine sons, creates um, an image of the divine. Or maybe I think it's actually the Father God that creates the image of the divine, but they're connected. It's complicated. Um, and then that divine man uh, falls into matter, falls in love actually with nature, depending on which hermetic text you read, um, falls in love with nature and then embraces nature and becomes that divine spark embedded in the material world. But Zosimos um, alludes a little bit to the, the hermetic triad, but he also talks about it in Gnostic terms um, as phos. So phos means being of light, man of light, essentially. And so phos is um, in the Garden of Eden and the cosmic rulers. So here he's using Gnostic terms. Um, the cosmic rulers um, are jealous of this being of light. And so they want to trick him and try to clothe him with their atom, which is the man of flesh that coats or covers the man of light. And so he becomes trapped. And then Zosimos then just kind of, again, it's not a story form, but then switches to talking about Jesus um, as the Savior coming to rescue uh, the men of light that are trapped within the, the fleshly bodies. And he rescues, rescues them and brings them to their spiritual home, which is where all the fotes come from, the, the realm of light. And uh, before we go, uh, 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 Trumbling along with uh, with the question sheet that that I have, I just want to take a moment to see if uh, Bishop Laney, do you have any comments, questions, anything you want to raise? I, I do have a question that occurred to me when I was looking this over, and I this is just kind of out of left field. But is there any connection between this tradition, Zosimos, and 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 his tradition, and the myth or the story of Tubal Cain, uh, who was one of a uh, descendant of Cain, who was like the first blacksmith? Is there, if you encountered that anywhere? I have not encountered that anywhere, but that would be an interesting lead to follow. Yeah. Um, no. I, I'm just, I, as I said, I had just, I did, it just one of the things that occurred to me when I was reading about uh, in your paper about how Sosmos was upset that some metallurgists were not spiritually inclined and that was not appropriate. And I began to think about that there are some esoteric traditions which have that have uh, Tubal Cain as the blacksmith um, as part of their tradition. So I just I began to wonder about that. But I, I, I may look into that myself because I just that was one of the first things that came to mind. 
Yeah, that's interesting. No, he definitely has problems with some of his competitors. Um, and it's over <laughs> methodologies that they're using. Um, but yeah, no, um, no mention that I can recall okay. anyway. People came. That, that, that that's an awesome question lady because he seems like an obvious figure if you're working in the this hellenistic syncretic uh judeo-christian um uh, frame and you're trying to find like oh i i want an ancestor i want a tradition i want uh, somebody from the past who's who's a metallurgist <laughs> and who is spiritual um the, the, he would seem like an obvious guy to go to so if I, i'm sure if not so so most at the time i'm I, i'm i'm assuming that there we may have lost it there's got to be somebody who grabbed on the tubal cane because as you said there's more modern or from the last couple hundred years uh uh traditions that have made those connections yeah. so um uh, Dr. Grimes, can you tell us a, a bit more about Zosimos' cosmology? And, and you mentioned, you know, he uses the archons, but can you tell us about his, his demiurgic figure as well, the mimic? Mm, sure. So in Hermetic thought, the demiurge is the good guy. That's the creator god. He's not an evil or, you know, mm -hmm. well, I guess evil, sort of, in as <laughs> in the Gnostic texts. So he goes back and forth. Like he, Zosimos does not consider the demiurge an evil figure, but he talks about this text is largely about fate. Okay, so the idea that fate is um, controlling you. And mm -hmm. he's critical of other alchemists who are using this kind of astrology. And it's hard because Zosimos uses a kind of astrology in his work too. So it's a competition between different types of astrological thinking. Um, but he's saying that these he's he's criticizing his competitors for being too like driven by fate and they're invoking like certain probably demons of various hours of the day or days of the year um, in order to gain success in their work. But Zosimos um, would rather work in harmony with natural forces. And this is very Egyptian, um, you know, work like honoring the sun when it rises and you do certain things, you know, at certain times of the year and not at other times. And you that's that's cooperating with nature. Um, so anyway, the mimic for him is uh, while he draws upon the Gnostic myth, he doesn't talk about the Demiurge so much, but he talks about this figure called the mimic, the mimic daemon. And this figure is like a shadow of the divine image. And it's something that... Uh, you know, in Gnosticism, you have all these layers of being and the image, you can trace the image and it often has different names depending on where it is in the hypostasis from the divine world to the physical world. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of uh, in the hypostasis of the archons, for example, I think it's in that where you have Sophia, like the who's in the divine realm. And then as as you as the text describes Maybe it's on the origin of the world. I'm sorry. I can't remember. I'm getting them confused right now. But anyway, it takes on different names. So Sophia becomes Zoe, then becomes Eve, you know, et cetera. Right. So um, the same is true in, in uh, Zosimos' text. He talks about different names on different levels. So the mimic demon is just the mimic of the divine image on all these levels. And the mimic is like a shadow, mm -hmm. um, you know, a shadow self. It's something that may resemble the truth. It's like an... an um, an idol, an idola. It, it resembles the truth. It has an appearance of truth, but it is not the truth. And it can be tricky to discern what's the demon and what's the, or, you know, what's the mimic and what's the divine image. 
And so at some point when he's talking about Jesus, he contrasts the Jesus figure with the mimic demon or daimon and um, uses language uh, like antichrist language. So hmm. it's, in other words, the demon is the demiurge, it's the antichrist, it's the shadowy part of ourselves that don't have the truth but think we have the truth. You know, the mimic is all those yeah. things. Fascinating. Now, he uses the phrase, uh, the famous phrase, know thyself. Uh, and apparently he uses a lot. Like, what does he mean by it? I think ultimately knowing that you are, in essence, divine. I think that's ultimately his goal. But he talks a lot about um, self-knowledge. He Well, first of all, he uses that term like know thyself as uh, especially when, when somebody's being spiritually ignorant. He talks a lot about his competitors and how ignorant they are. They don't know themselves. You know, they don't abide by this precept, know thyself. So they're, you know, he uses it to talk about how others are clueless. That's one way he uses it. But um, he's serious. Uh, he's He talks about purifying the soul and observing your passions, observing your anger, observing, you know, all the mm -hmm. things that come up within us and talks about meditation and um, set kind of separating yourself, um, apatheia, dispassioning, you know, disconnecting from those passions, um, so, which purifies the soul of its stains and purifies it so that you can see the divine, which he thinks is everywhere and within everything. And it sounds remarkably contemporary in some ways. I mean, you know, we, we talk a lot about mindfulness. There's um, cognitive behavioral therapy, which encourages people to observe their thought thoughts rather than, you know, being consumed by them. And it's just, it's fascinating to see this very long thread of that, that, that quest for self-knowledge as being a, a, a massive part of initiation into spiritual mysteries. Absolutely. Well, you have, you know, the Buddha, you have the, you know, Hindu texts talking about meditation and this kind of self-observation, you know, that far predates the Greco-Roman period we're talking about. So it's very yeah. ancient, but yeah. also very contemporary, as you said. Yeah, yeah following that thread is, is fascinating. Uh, and, you know, something else, too, that, that, you know, started becoming very big in the 60s and is uh, very mainstream now is the idea about finding the true self, right? Discovering the authentic self. Uh, this is now a very mainstream idea that, that a lot of people uh, uh, outside of religion and in a secular context uh, want to want to do, right? Self-realization, uh, you know, getting rid of uh, the fake self that's imposed upon you, uh, to put it in perhaps more 1960s terms. So it is interesting to, to see that, that there are these, these very ancient um, uh, echoes and connections to what what can sometimes, you know, as Lainey and I have talked about on the show before, can seem like startlingly modern when you read the texts. Yes. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned uh, the the Christ and Antichrist, and actually how how Christ is a savior that's going to take you home to to the true reality where where the the inner divine soul is supposed to be. But but Sosimos is is a is a pagan connected to the mm -hmm. Egyptian priesthood and the traditional temples. He's a scribe. So why is he writing about Jewish and Christian religious teachings? Mm. Well, one thing he's interested in is trying to find a universal truth. So I think when he's comparing um, in the text we were just talking about, that letter Omega text, 
he's weaving together Gnostic teachings, Hermetic teachings, and Greek teachings, and trying to show um, commonalities between them. And he does this with alchemical theories, too, and with philosophy. Um, and it was a common thing that you see uh, Neoplatonists, for example, doing this also in this time period, is to try to find a, a to kind of a universal truth. Um, and I think that has to do maybe with increased multiculturalism in the Roman Empire, in the Greek and Roman empires, um, increased travel and increased encounters with people that have different um, cultural and religious beliefs, um, trying to find some commonality and thread. And I think this is particularly important for something like alchemy, which is looking at, um, right, well, science is universally true, right? The principles have to be universally true. They have to work. So I think that that goes hand in hand with what he's trying to do as an alchemist as well yeah. with theories and of nature. Yeah. And it's thought he's, uh, he lived around 300 in Alexandria. Um, probably in Panopolis. Right. He is so mentioned in a couple later texts <laughs> as a as an Alexandrian, but um, probably Panopolis. Right. And so it's most of Panopolis. Which uh, is that... right up the road, by the way, yeah. from Nag Hammadi. Oh, well, there you yeah. go. Oh. Very close. Yeah, very yeah. close. So there's a lot of potential connections. And your question about how how is he connected to the Gnostics? Um, you know, it's, I don't think it's just intellectual. I think he's you know, working with, I mean, he has Jewish metallurgical texts and books that he's reading. So I think he's, you know, he knows people and he's also reading their works. And, you know, there's this um, thriving community um, of Gnostics nearby, you know, but what connection he has with, with them or what, if they were a community or if they were just, you know, it's hard to say. Yeah. It's hard to say much more research needs to be done. Yeah, and, and I know that the connections go both way as well because uh, some scholars have found alchemical metaphors within some of the Nagamadic texts. So uh, we we've had Dylan Burns on the show before, although we didn't talk about it. But I, I remember he wrote a paper about alchemical metaphors and uh, paraphrase Hashem, which is one of the the NHL uh, texts. So it's yeah, there's definitely <laughs> some some interesting uh, intellectual cross currents going on at this fascinating time in this fascinating part of the world. Yes, absolutely. Now you touched on this before, so but but again, and and I guess uh, even when we say alchemy, and even though you've talked about it, people are are still going to have some some conceptions about uh, you know a guy with test tubes in, in the middle of the night trying to turn lead into gold, right? But uh, you touched on this before, but uh, Zosimos is writing about statues. Mm -hmm. You know why would why are our statues important to him? Why would they be important to an alchemist? Well, he doesn't write about statues a lot, and you have to kind of go outside the Greek text and into some of the Syriac translations to find a mention of them. But, and he has some, there's some ambivalence there um, that he has about statues. So it's curious. But so, first of all, I think that that's part, well, that would have been part of what temple metallurgists did was make divine statues, um, either for the temple themselves or on commission for people who wanted some in their homes or for funerary objects. Um, and he has some, there's some ambivalence where he's, it seems like he doesn't like how people are viewing some of the statues. But on the other hand, he's praising artists for what they do. And these statues are so beautiful and look at the colors. They're amazing. So he's proud of them on the one hand, but then there's some ambivalence um, about 
people, these competitors that he has. He loves to trash his competitors. Um, and he doesn't like how they view them and they don't know themselves, etc. So it's tricky because these texts, you know, Zosimos' writings that we have are excerpted. So we don't have, you know, large collections. We have excerpts of his writings that have been preserved largely through Christian and Muslim channels. So and especially in Islam, right? Um, they're not going to like the statues. <laughs> um, yeah, so we have notes in the margins that talk about this uh, particular statue maker being in, like an idolater. Uh, probably it's not by Zosimos, but it's a scribe. So some of these views uh, could have been, like the text could have been amended by scribes to reflect a more um, Islamic, Islamic-friendly perspective regarding the statues. It's hard to say. Um, but it certainly would have been part of the work he did as a temple metallurgist to make statues. And some of the rituals that he describes are rituals around making statues um, and consecrating the statues and breathing the divine life, you know, bringing the God into matter. Um, yeah. yeah, It, well, it kind of reminds me, I'm sorry. Oh, I was so just going to um, it reminds me of people who train to become iconographers. And uh, that you know, they, you don't paint an icon; you write an icon, um, because it's an it's 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 an expression of the divine, uh, and it it it's um, you know it's a lengthy process to be to become an iconographer in the in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. Um, so just hearing about this, um, it reminds me a, a bit of that process. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's about the approach you take to the material, right? You said you don't paint yeah. it, you you, you have write to the icon kind of mindset, right? Yeah, um, that's involved, and I think that could be why Zosimos has a problem with some statues or statue makers, is because of it lacks that awareness, spiritual yeah. awareness. Yeah, like the and of course you've already explained this, but to clarify the like these. It's it's not just a statue, right? Like it is it's something far beyond a, a statue. You know, it becomes consecrated. It becomes a, a literal representative of a god on earth that you could hypothetically communicate with, right? Like mm -hmm. there's some people would perhaps hear or claim to hear the statue speaking to them or teaching them. Uh, would that be correct? Like it's really the next level from just a, a something pretty to look at. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, these had living power. They were the bodies of the God. The God resided in the body. Um, if not all the time, it, it would travel there. It was like a home for it. But every morning, the statues would be oh, in the temples, would be woken up and bathed and dressed and cared for because that's mm. how you care for the God. Of course. And uh, yeah, Lainey, it's interesting to make the connection with with, uh, with iconography and icon writing because because I don't think it's just parallel thinking uh, because it is an Eastern tradition and uh, Neoplatonism was such a big influence on the Eastern Orthodox Church, you know, as well as the Western Church. So I, I think it is actually connected to that stream, right? Because you, I, I think of Iamblichus, uh, who uh, uh, rambled quite a bit <laughs> about uh, you know creating statues in this in this fashion and performing these theurgic acts. Um, and of course, this ties into uh, why this is why it's so important in Sosimosa's thought, right? That you you have to do the alchemy upon yourself to to be worthy of making the statue, to have it uh, the actually work <laughs> and do what it's supposed to. Would that be right? Absolutely. Um, and two, it's tricky because there's 
different levels of metallurgy that are happening in the temples. And so there's the people, you know, people doing the kind of the basic work. Zosimos was a higher priest and only the high priests were allowed to participate in those rites. And he knows detail, I mean, very specific details that he, he alludes to. He doesn't outright talk about them, but he alludes to symbols and objects um, in his text that it's clear that he was in the room, that he, he was part of those rites. So he would have had to have been a higher level um, priest. And so whether all metallurgists, you know, had that attitude, probably not. Um, And certainly that, that bears out in the texts themselves that are survived. Not all of them contain religious ideas or um, that kind of speculation. So I don't know how far Zosimos would have gone to say that everybody needs to be thinking like this, but certainly in the people that he was speaking to, who he was training um, or teaching, instructing in some way, um, he thought it was very important. Yeah. And and even though, oh, sorry. Uh, even though we didn't spell it out, I, I think a lot of people are making the connection and, and catching on about religious alchemy, which is, is, is using some of the metaphors from alchemy, alchemy and, and metallurgy and saying you have to know thyself, you have to watch the passions, and hence you transform yourself. Would that be correct? Into a more spiritual being, into the human of light, into the body of light, into the man of light. Is, is that... Am I right in that? <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. yeah, transforming the self, absolutely. Yeah. And um, while they weren't necessarily focused on purifying the metals, I mean, sometimes they were. Um, it yeah. depended on what the recipes were for. Sometimes they were blackening metals. Sometimes they were coloring metals blue or pink or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, different colors to represent. Well, the statues, it's interesting because his texts are being used by art historians um, in the past... 15 years or so um, because they've discovered they have new x-ray technology where they can actually see the metal statues of Egypt. They can of ancient Egypt. They can look and see how brightly colored they were mm-hmm. and that they'd heard about this, you know, that they were known for their coloring of metals, but nobody had been able, been able to see it because I mean, you know, metals, they rust, they corrode, they get patinas. And so all, you know, thousands of years worth of that stuff, they couldn't, discern the coloring. Um, and so their art historians are looking at these alchemical texts and sort of like reconstructing the recipes that they use uh, to make these colors, which in that art had been lost. Fascinating. Um, well, I think we're, we're almost uh, in the in wrap up time. Uh, but before before I launch into uh, the, the goodbyes, uh, Bishop Laney, do you have any uh, final questions, thoughts, what have you? Well, I think that, um, you know, this is, I, I'm, well, I'll say this. First of all, I'll say that I'm absolutely delighted that this kind of scholarship is taking place more often. Um, when I started studying esoteric topics, it was, it, you know, it was, it could be very difficult to find genuine scholarly work. And uh, so I'm, I'm delighted <laughs> that this kind of work is happening. Um, I, you know, and I will also say just, you know, bringing up these themes that so clearly resonate with ongoing traditions and, and ideas and themes, it's, it's really quite delightful. So I'm thankful to you, Dr. Grimes, for, for bringing uh, Zosimos to us. Because this is this is um, it's very moving on my I, at least from where I'm sitting, it's just very moving to hear about him and what he was doing and and to feel that resonance. 
Thank you. I appreciate that. And I feel the same way. I've researching it has been amazing. I mean, I've spent the last 20 years or so researching Zosimos. Sure. Um, thinking about him, but um, I was worried when I was going to do my dissertation or when I wanted to do my dissertation on Zosimos, I wasn't sure it would fly. And I'm grateful to my advisors back then for supporting me in the work and for, and just scholarship on esoteric topics has, as you know, become much more acceptable within mm. the last 20 years or so. And I'm very grateful for that as well. Yeah. So the, the last most final question to wrap up with, uh, Dr. Grimes, could you tell us about your book and where people can get it? Sure. My book is Becoming Gold. Um, let's see. The subtitle is, yeah, there it is. Zosimosa Panopolis and the Alchemical Arts in Roman Egypt. It's available um, through Robedo Press, um, which is my publisher. There's a website there. And you can also get it on Amazon. Perfect. It's affordable <laughs> for an academic love, book. <laughs> yeah, for an academic book, it's uh, definitely affordable. So yeah. I'm definitely going to get a copy, and I and I hope everybody uh, watching and listening uh, uh, definitely does as well. So because I haven't read it yet, I've just read some of your articles and was instantly fascinated and grabbed by them. So I'm really going to be looking forward to uh, to receiving my copy. Well, great, thank you. Yeah. Well, I, I guess that's that's it. Uh, some final plugs. Uh, I do uh, free online secular meditation. I have some training in mindfulness meditation, more psychology-based. But it's great if you're a Gnostic. If you're not a Gnostic, if you're looking to build a practice, if you already have a practice and you just want to meditate with other people because you're stuck in your house, I do it free online every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Just go to mylandmeditation.substack.com. Dot com. Uh, you can sign up for our uh, email list there. You can see the schedule there. Uh, I'm also doing any of my Montreal Parish stuff online. That's generally every second Sunday in the evening. That's holygrail.substack.com. Uh, so feel free to check that out. Uh, usually that, uh, obviously, is more specifically Gnostic, but it, it uh, often fun uh, functions particularly as we're doing it online as a sort of mystically-based meditation night. Uh, Bishop Laney, do you have any plugs before we depart? Uh, not, not this week. Hopefully soon, though. Ooh, exciting. Okay. So yeah, we'll be looking forward for that. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, Dr. Grimes, this has been awesome. Thanks again. Uh, everybody go out and get her book. And <laughs> on behalf of Talknosis, this is Deacon Jonathan Stewart signing off. <laughs> Night, everybody.